Our scripture this morning is in Revelation. It's chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Originally, I had planned to preach through all seven of these letters um, in the course of five sermons, trying to finish it before Easter. However, as I jumped into the text, um, I found that there's more than enough just going one church at a time. Um, And so instead of doing a preaching series using the chiastic pattern, which is present, what you'll see is that revelation, uh, uh, the way these letters are written, ch- uh, churches one and seven, that is Ephesus and Laodicea are paralleled, and then two and six are paralleled, and three and five, and then four is in the middle. But uh, instead, we're just going to go one at a time. So I'm a little bit frustrated with that because I planned out a whole timeline, but uh, this is a better way of going through God's Word, fully understanding all that's present in it. Last thing is, before we jump into our text, what we'll see in each of these letters is that there are five components in each. And sometimes there is actually an absence of it, and that is um, significant to our understanding of what's going on. The five components in each of these letters, one you'll see that there's a, a title for Christ. And then Christ will give a commendation to the church. Then there'll be a Christ's complaint or rebuke to the church. Christ's correction and solution to the church. And then finally, a consequence, both positive and negative, for the church as they hear God's word. So that's how we will roughly be evaluating or walking through each of these letters. Um, And with that said, I'm going to invite you now to come before the Lord with me in prayer as we ask him to show his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, you are the light of the world. And uh, Jesus, we just ask now this morning that your spirit would be upon us to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to open our ears that we might hear your word. Lord, that by your power we might apply it to our hearts and lives and live more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 2, 1-7 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have 
You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. The word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God. Out of all the churches we will cover and out of all the cities which those churches were in, Ephesus is probably the most significant and remarkable of them. In the ancient world, it was either the third or the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And part of what led to the greatness of Ephesus was the port which it had on the Mediterranean Sea, though silting has made that port nearly six miles from uh, the ancient ruins of Ephesus are nearly six miles from where the sea actually is now. And not only was it a valuable place by sea trade, it also stood in a favorable position for land trade as well. And the, these two things would allow Ephesus to grow to a remarkably large size of nearly 250,000 people, roughly 20,000 more than Spokane. <laughs> Other elements of Ephesus which are of note or setting the context of this letter is that uh, the temple of Artemis, specifically Artemis of the Ephesians, was located in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Aside from this temple, there was also a temple to Caesar and a temple to the goddess Roma. And generally, this city was known for um, a, a collective of religious practices. We have um, documents we, we, we called the Ephesian letters. There's this practice, there was these, this idea of certain sounds or names or, or categories of words like hocus-pocus type stuff, which were thought to have power, and we called them the Ephesian letters. They come from this time. They probably come from, from, from practices which were done and made popular by uh, festivals at the Temple of Artemis. In fact, we even see this shown in, in Scripture. Acts 19 has this story. Um, actually, even the way Paul witnessed to Ephesus kind of captures this. In Acts 19, we get this story of some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they, would, they went to one man specifically, and they said, I adjure you by the, the power of Jesus whom Paul proclaims to come out of him. And the demon responded, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then this evil spirit jumped on them and mastered them all, overpowered them, and so they fled. And this became known in Ephesus to all the residents, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So we, so we get in this, this, this culture of Ephesus a, a significant idea of the power of the name of Jesus, the power over other things. We also get this verse which follows. 
And so many of those who were now believers, and this is in Acts 19, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus. 50,000 pieces of silver is not a small amount. Not then and not today. In fact, some estimates put it at nearly 6 million. And what I think is remarkable about that, that context for the the very start of the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, is that they didn't try and resell those books. They burned them up. What I want us to see is that the church of Ephesus starts out in this soil, in this culture, in this spirit of truth, truth alone. That they will have nothing to do with the the fallacies and the falsities of the culture around them. And in many ways, I think it's similar to maybe how the Reformed Church started out of a response to Catholic corruptions and mysticisms, saying, no, we will have none of that. But we want to be built and built solely alone on the truth and on the Bible, on, 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 on the true God. And so they divulge their practices, they, they open themselves up, and they try and redeem nothing of the corrupt, nothing of these sorcery books. And we see that in our text this morning. Ephesus is doing well, I think, still. You know, when, when Revelation is written to them, this church is commended. That's Christ's commendation to them, is a commendation on their orthodoxy, their sound doctrines, that they test those who are false. And you would think that to a church that's so focused on correct teaching on the truth, on weeding out the false? You think Jesus would come to them with a title like that which we find in Laodicea. To Laodicea, Jesus comes as the word of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. To a church built on truth whose identity and spirit is oriented towards truth and orthodoxy, you think that title would be the one he would choose. But from the very start, what I like about our text this morning is we actually see Jesus coming with the opposite, in a way. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold stamps. Golden lampstands. What I like, and we even see this transition in the chapter before, the stars were in his right hand, but the Greek now says that he holds them and walks among. 
Jesus' title to this church, which is built up on sound doctrine, is more relational. He walks among them. He is near them. And I think what we see is a Savior who is kind of what we need, not necessarily what we like or want. What I mean by that is this church is going to be the first of seven, and to each of them, Jesus' title points towards something that they need. And I think in this one, the relational aspect is what Ephesus lacks. So let's explore the commendation a little bit more. My professor calls this church the church of loveless orthodoxy. And we can see the orthodoxy in these verses of 2 and 3. It says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who, are, who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They also commended for their hate of the Nicolaitans, that they will have nothing to do with them and their works. In many ways, churches in America could learn from that, right? That commendation. Unfortunately, very few churches uphold that testing. Far more teachers are not tested and, and tested against the Bible. Many of, this is, many of these churches just accept even the CRC can be held to that, as we have in our denomination as a greater extent, and among peers that I graduated, teachings accepted, believed, and practiced, which are Nicolaitan in spirit. And so in many ways, you would think this church is good, thumbs up, positive, and yet the, um, the warning for the church in Ephesus is among the stronger ones. Ephesus and Laodicea are paralleled, and their warnings are for the, the church in Laodicea that, that they will be spat out, right? But the church here in Ephesus, the warning is that their lampstands will be their lampstand will be removed from its place and the significance of the warning speaks to the spiritual state of the church that though their orthodoxy is great their sin their error is greater verse 4 but this i have against you you have abandoned, some translations say, forsaken. They have left the love you had at first. That is their affront. That is their fault before God. And why is that so significant? Well, scholars debate what this love is. And then there's really two camps by which we can evaluate this fault. Some say that they have abandoned their love of God, 
And that's a possibility. But the pushback on that is that if they've abandoned their love of God, by what means are they testing the false teachers? By what means are they evaluating? The other camp suggests this, that they've abandoned their love for each other. I think that's more on point. But I actually think there's a sort of middle ground which captures both. I'm going to get into that in a moment. The reason I think it's that they abandon their love for each other is that we see in the correction they are called to do as an action the love, the works that they did at first. So those who take the second option would say that they still held orthodoxy. That they still loved God, they just didn't love each other in their works to each other. But what bothers me about the second perspective is that I really think it downplays the reaction which God has to it. And what I would like to say is that God never separates truth and love. And so that if you don't have, in fact, that's what I think we see when we hold both these churches in their parallel. God has nothing to do with a church that is based in no truth, that has no truth, that will not accept the truth. And at the same point, it's not better, it's just as bad to have a church that has no love. For in Christ we saw and see love and truth connected and fully together. The warning is so strong for both Laodicea and Ephesus because they stray so much from what God's work ought to do, what God's work has manifested and now manifests in us. This, I think the warning is so strong because a loveless church is just a, as horrid a thing in the sight of God as a complacent or a false teacher, false church. And in fact, I think we see illustrations of this. So a church which would in practice love the doctrines of God but have nothing of the love of God would look very pharisaical, wouldn't it? J.I. Packer has this, this quote. He says, there are theologians who know much about God and know nothing of God. And he says that pointing out that God is not satisfied with truth that lacks love, nor love that lacks truth. And to be honest, I don't think either of these things can exist. Because there might be a truth that exists without love, but it's not God's truth. It's not God's truth. My twin growing up, actually in college, he had these years of struggle, and he would take all the attributes of God, and he'd say, well, what if God is, is good and this and this and this, but he's not loving, or he's not honest, or he's not sovereign? 
He would set these things up. And my only argument to him, right? He would say, what if God is lying and duping all of us? My only argument to him through this, and it's the most powerful argument, is if we take even one aspect or attribute away from God, you fundamentally do not have God. You have an idol. So consider how the Pharisees knew the law, knew the doctrines of God more than you and I. Paul knew all these things, but their hearts were so far from God, from the love and expression and the love that, that, that is God, that they didn't recognize God even when he stood before them in the flesh in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians is a church that has lost its love. And I would say it's lost both its love for God which is both spiritual and in truth, and a love for each other. You might ask, how does this play out in New Hope? And truth be told, I can't tell you individually how it plays out for each and every one of us. But I can share some of the experiences which I had and have had as a pastor as a seminarian, as a recent seminary graduate, it is quite easy to fall into this, this Christian life where you tell someone the right answers, but you do not teach them the right answers. You tell them God's word, but you do not teach them God's word because teaching is hard. Teaching takes time and patience, and it takes love takes vulnerability. In the seminary, especially, um, I, I'll share an example of it. Uh, the seminary I went to had both complementarian and egalitarian, which means those who were for women's ordination and those who were not or against it. One of the things in seminary, the most growing aspect for me, was having to learn to love those who I fundamentally disagreed with, and powerfully so. And you might say that's not that hard. That's actually easier, easy, but it's not. One of the things that I experienced throughout my seminary is I was called by Christ to love women who I doctrinally disagreed with, and to go above and beyond to encourage them as sisters in Christ in that. And in some sense, that would be easy. But the hard part was when, even after doing things, I can think of a woman who, who preached, which I disagreed with, and I went and I listened to her because she was struggling and I wanted to show I cared for this sister in Christ. I can think of another woman who was sick during my time in seminary and I sent her a care package through Amazon. And I can think of another woman who ended up 
leaving her church as she pursued a call to ministry. I'm not preaching right now on women's ordination. I'm preaching on the love which we have to have for brothers and sisters in Christ, even in the midst of doctrinal disagreements and divisions. The painful thing is that even at the end of that, there were some who would still label me a bigot. And so for me, as a seminarian, it was easy to grow hard and cold in my doctrine because doctrine and truth can be a shield, a shield which keeps us from loving. Here's what I mean. Um, There is a risk in that teaching of one, being wrong yourself, but two, investing and then being hurt, right? Love puts the hands down. And so I think this church in Ephesus followed that manner. And so Christ calls them back to a spirit of love, not love with, with, without doctrine, but love with doctrine. So how can this be applied for you at New Hope? There's two ways that immediately come to mind. One is realizing that in this church, people will have different preferences and beliefs, some of which can be navigated. But some of it can be simply as some prefer songs and some prefer sermons. Some prefer prayer and some prefer liturgy or different elements. The other way, I would say, and I do think New Hope is a church of love, especially love to each other, but I reflect and think of the love which I had at first that perhaps New Hope could grow into. When I first started taking my faith seriously, I had a zeal for Christ and sharing him that was borderline insane and awkward. And even this morning I talked about it. Um, There was a group of us talking about how New Hope had a, a moving culture where we'd help moving. Well, when I first started really being a, a Christian, taking my, spa- my faith seriously, I had a Ford F-150 manual pickup truck, and it's someday my desire, my dream, to get another one. For this reason, because I was the guy with a truck, and it was a manual, so they couldn't borrow it. They had to have me come and help them, and I would invade people's lives to love them, to help them, but then to share with them. Share with them my church. Share with them my faith. Share with them the hope and the joy that I had in Christ. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I um, was in the airport planning to fly to Portland, and I never got out of it. I never got out of the airport. Um, My flight got canceled. But I was thinking of that, how I would invade people's lives, because what I had 
the gospel I had, they needed to hear, and I would find those ways to share. And so for me, one of the ways that this week happened was I ended up sitting next to a guy whose flight also got canceled, and he spent the night in Portland, first here in Spokane, and I asked him if we could grab dinner. I got dinner with him, checked out Victory Burger. What I want, us, what I want to point is that love will not let distance be, but will walk among and will find ways in, into others' lives. Because the truth and the doctrines which we have are too important not to share. And so for New Hope, the way I think New Hope might apply this, not within the church to you and to each other, because I think you love well in that, but what about to your neighbors? And there's a specific way that I thought of. I've been here now three weeks, and I've met two neighbors. So I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I haven't been working on myself. But one, I'm sure you know your neighbors better than I know mine. You know more of their names. But do you know what's going on in their lives right now, in the last week, in the last month? And do you know how you might love them, might actually serve them with works? The Ephesian church is called to do the works that they did at first. So this is a little bit of a challenge, but a reasonable one. Do you know what's going on in your neighbor's lives? Those who are both literally close to you or at work. And do you know and do they know that you're there to do things for them, to love them, to show that in any way. My neighbor um, that I met just this week, Brian, I ended that saying, hey, if there's any ever anything you need, let me know. And I actually need to follow up with him and make sure he knows that. Because that will give witness for us to teach the faith that is ours. Pastor Wyma, when he explores this text, he draws this connection. And, uh, no, I'm going to skip that. That's just adding. And I think I might be going too long. So the correction for this church in Ephesus is to do the things that they were were. It's, it's two things. One, they're called to remember, and two, they're called to do. Remember and repent, and then do the things you did at first. This morning, I encourage you to remember. Remember when your sin was at its greatest before you, and when your salvation was also. Is it probably at that moment where you were the most exuberant, most open, most vulnerable, most silly Christian who shared and did and did ridiculously?
The final thought has to do with both the warning and the promise. The warning which Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus is that I will remove your lampstand from its place. And in some ways, that might sound like troubling for a church, right? To be removed. But I actually see a hope in it and a care in it. Warnings are given to those who are loved. Warnings are given to promote and encourage change before it's too late. That's the fundamental idea in a warning. And so this warning is an expression of Christ's love to his church, a specific church, and to us. Finally, there's the promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And in this I see both an allusion to the title which he had before, but also to the entire relational restoration which we have in Christ Jesus, the end goal. The Garden of Eden had the tree of life when man walked with God, with no sin separating us. And to eat is to be blessed and to receive from no work of yourself, but to to receive the blessing and the goodness and the love of Christ, of God to us. So we see the promise of God's goodness to us, which started from the cross of Christ, being brought to an eternal, permanent blessing of life, provision, and presence with the God of truth and love. You join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in spirit and in truth, thanking you for your word to us this morning. And Lord, we rejoice that you are a God who draws near, who speaks and walks among his church, and who holds his church in his hand. Give us now, Lord, the strength to go forth and to love, to love with the love which you have lavished upon us, to love because you first loved us through your Son, Jesus. God, we pray that we may be known by our love, our love for you and our love for each other and our love for others. And may our love be manifested, proved and undeniable by works. Lord, we pray that you would open doors and show us opportunities this week as we go out into the world to be your hands and your feet and your witnesses in a fallen world greatly in need of love and your truth. And we pray these things by Jesus Christ and his spirit through his blood. Amen.